All right, well, good morning. We're going to continue our Bible study on the epistle of Paul, the apostle to the Romans, and we're dealing with a passage from Romans 1, 18 through 32 about the wrath of God. And it's it, we've gone over this before, but it is fascinating that out of the gate, as soon as Paul talked about that he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God and the salvation for those who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, that he immediately goes into the wrath of God rather than the love of God or rather than the grace of God or rather than the mercy of God. He goes into the wrath of God. And in verse 18, the first word is for, which means because. And when you, when you, when you look at this and you begin to understand how the Bible was written, so verse 18 begins with for, but verse 17 begins with for as well. Then verse 16 begins with for as well. So you have to start with verse 15 or at the, at the minimum or maybe even verse 14, but I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Why? 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 Because I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Because... In it, in the gospel, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith because, and then we're off to the races in verse 18 through 32. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm using verses 18 through 32 be, to try to break up a very, very long uh, dissertation by Paul that starts at verse 18 of chapter 1 and goes all the way to verse 26, I think, of, verse, of chapter 3. Let me, let me, let me, um, yeah, it goes all the way to chapter 3, verse 26. That's one thought. Chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 26 is one thought. And then he gets into another thought. Now, we have to remember that the, the people who put the chapter divisions in the Bible and the people that put the verse numbering in the Bible, those are not inspired. Those are not infallible. Those are not inerrant. They did their best job. Many times it's very, very, very helpful. Sometimes it's not very helpful. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, they really butchered it up, and they should have included a lot of verses in the next, a lot of state words in the next verse rather than, and we'll get into that if we ever get into Ephesians, but the point I'm trying to make is what should have been done is chapter 3 verse 27 should have been the beginning of chapter 4 because he begins his discussion of the, of the righteousness of faith versus the righteousness of works, which chapter 4 gets into detail about. So, so anyway, we are beginning this by looking at uh, verses 18 through 32. So let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, only you are wise and holy and good and, and wonderful and glorious. And Lord, we are of the earth, earthy. And Lord, we desire to know you better. We desire to understand your word. We desire to, to, to see Jesus more clearly in his magnificence so that we may worship him rightly and fully. Lord, we desire to not just become smart about the Bible so we can win arguments, but Lord, we desire to understand your word that we may 
be more humble, that we can be transformed, that we can become more like Jesus in all that we say and do. Help us to do that this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've gone over verses 18 and 19 to to a large, great extent, and I know I didn't exactly finish the thinking uh, all the way to uh, verse 26, is it? Um, Okay. Um, right, and 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 so I'm 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 gonna. All right, we stopped at the bottom of page twenty-six. So let's go up to the middle of page twenty-six, and um, where it says in Second Thess- Thessalonians chapter two. In that, in that chapter, Paul is describing the end of the age and the great apostasy and deception that will come on the world in those days. He says that the lawless one will come, and in verse 10 it says, with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And that's what I was trying to illustrate, that it's not enough just to understand the Bible. It's not enough to know what the Bible says. You've got to love the truth. You've got to come to love the truth. That's the goal. And loving the truth is connected to believing the truth. So if you love the truth correctly, if you believe the truth correctly, you will love it. If you love it correctly, you will believe it. That's that's the connection. Please note that unrighteousness deceives. It suppresses the truth. He continues that they are perishing because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So... Those who are deceived in unrighteousness do not receive the love of the truth. So they suppress the truth and evade it. They don't love it. Why? Look what he said in verses 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Sister Charlotte. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Now, you just these two verses are, number one, they're frightening, they're amazing. But the reason that I preach so hard and teach so hard against human free will, supposed human free will or human self-determination, is because of verses like this. What does that say in verse 11? For this reason, because they did not love the truth, God will send upon them what? A deluding influence. A deluding influence. To what end? So that they will what? Believe what is false. Now, what do you call that? What's another way of describing this? What is this What is this illustrating to you? God's in charge. Right. That he's sovereign. But, but, but specifically, God's in charge, in this case, over what? What people believe. Right. What we believe. So, believing something is not simply that we decide to believe that it makes sense to us, that we want to believe, that we choose to believe. There's something else involved. God's involved in us believing, is he not? Right. Because in this case, um, let's see if we can use a word that's very offensive. He purposefully allows people to be deceived. So this is kind of like when this says in in, in in the book of Exodus that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. The Bible says two things, and it says it in the same chapter, that Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then it says God hardened his heart. 
Now, so there was an overt act by God to harden a man's heart so that he would not repent, so that he would not believe, so that he would not let the children of Israel go, so that God could judge him. And, and then the, Romans chapter 9 tells us that the only reason Pharaoh was alive, the only reason he was birthed, the only reason his mom and daddy had him, the only reason that he was allowed to live and, and, and grow and become Pharaoh and, and suck in air and his heart was beating, the only reason he took up physical space on the earth was so he could be an example of God's judgment against unbelievers. That's the only reason. God had no intention of saving Pharaoh. Pharaoh did not have an opportunity to be saved. God did not desire to save him. That is what the Bible teaches. Now, I understand that's unpleasant. I understand people don't, and they don't believe it. They say, God loves everybody. Okay, fine. He didn't love Esau. And I, I would tell you that the wording of Romans 9 about Pharaoh tells me that he didn't love Pharaoh either. Now, Pharaoh had, I don't know how old he was when all this was transpiring. I think, if I'm, if I'm correct, they've actually found the mummy of this Pharaoh that was with Moses. Ramses II. They think they found that mummy. Um, so he didn't die in, in, with the other ones. Uh, he was mummified. And this is the guy, I don't know, I, I forget what they, but it doesn't look like he's a young man when he died. He looked like he was an older man. So let's, you know, 50 years old. Let's say he was 50 years old when he died, okay? God gave him 50 years on the earth. You can almost be assured that this man laughed, that he enjoyed certain things, that he ate certain foods that tasted good, that he saw blessings in his life, that he had pleasant days, that he loved people and people loved him. I mean... Even in history, when you talk about somebody like Adolf Hitler, you, you forget that Hitler loved puppies. Hitler was a, Hitler, also he was a vegetarian. Hitler loved dogs. He loved animals. In fact, he passed laws in Germany to protect animals. So animal rights people should love Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler is the one that started the Audubon. And the Audubon is the uh, highway system in Germany that still exists today where there's no speed limit on the Audubon. You can go as fast as you, your car can travel. You have to go 70. Yeah, you have to go 70. And the curves are banked so you can, you can turn on the curves and not lose control of your car. This was, this was done by Hitler. He built highway systems. He paid teachers more than anybody else in the country. He paid uh, military people more than anybody else in the country because Hitler was in charge of a socialistic country. Nazism was not far right. Nazism was far left. He, had, he was a socialist. The government controlled pay. The government controlled wages. Sister Colleen? Ask the question. I just want everybody to hear the question. Didn't he also invent the Volkswagen? Well, he didn't invent it, but he, he was in charge it. when it was invented. Volks, it's, it's, it's the V and the W are, are, are changed around. It's not, it's not Volkswagen. It's Volkswagen in German, which means people car. It was the people's car. And, and uh, the people thought Hitler was the greatest guy since sliced bread until he started invading other countries because he, 
He, he made the nation prosper. The, the, Germany was on the rocks right after World War I. The, they had over a 1,000% inflation rate. So they paid people in cash twice a day because the dollar, the mark, would have been worth less by end of business than it was at noon. And people would take, they had $100 billion marks and they would load it in a wheelbarrow and run down the street to put it in the bank before the inflation would make it nearly worthless. And people would steal the wheelbarrow and leave the money on the street. And so people were starving to death. People were, uh, and it looked like Germany was going to become communistic. And Hitler rose to power, and everybody thought this was the second coming because he, the people loved him until he started doing what he did. Same thing with Pharaoh. Pharaoh was not hated by everybody. He is an evil man in our, our sense of the word. And, and to God, he was evil. But he did things to help Egyptians. And he did things to make Egypt, at that time, the greatest standing army on the face of the earth. So when God drowned the Egyptian army, when the, when the Red Sea collapsed upon them again, he destroyed the greatest standing army on the face of the earth at that time. And, and so it's no small thing. And they've, never, they've been a third-rate power ever since. They've never recovered from it. And so uh, I'm not trying to insult Egyptians. I'm just saying they're, they're not in the top tier of, of nations today. They never have been. That's just a fact. And, and um, so, um, and yet the Bible says God hardened his heart. And the Bible says in Romans 9 that God used him as an example. Example of what? He wasn't an example of salvation. What was he an example of? God's judgment. Right, right. So we can't be scared to say that. It doesn't mean we have to enjoy that because it's frightening. But you have to understand there's two things that God, the reason that God created man is for two reasons. So the glory of his grace could be seen upon those, could be seen and appreciated and valued upon those that he chose to save. And so the glory of God's justice could be seen and feared upon those that he left to themselves. That's the reason God, man exists. That's the reason God made us. That's the reason he put the earth at a particular distance from the sun. That's why we have one moon instead of 36 moons. That's why we have water and tides and oxygen and helium and hydrogen on this earth. That's why we have green grass and an atmosphere so that people can live, so that people can sin, so that people can be saved, so that the glory of God's grace or the glory of God's justice can be seen. That's why God did all of this. Other than that, he didn't need us. He wasn't at a loss. He wasn't lonely. He didn't have any other reason to create man other than to glorify himself through his grace in saving unworthy sinners or in judging unrepentant sinners. So, um, and this is, a, this is something that people have to, have to try to grasp. Everybody in hell deserves to be in hell. There's not a single innocent person in hell. But everybody in heaven deserves to be in hell too. So nobody deserves heaven and everybody deserves hell. So in his mercy, God decided to save some of the unworthy sinners.
Now, he didn't have to save anybody. So the, 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 everybody gets bent out of shape at God. Well, why didn't he choose to save all of them? Well, that's God's business, but he didn't have to save anybody. He'd have been fine all by himself and damn everybody, every one of us. But he didn't. He chose to save some of us. Is that not merciful? I, I use this example in, in, when I'm teaching, you know, sometimes I use it here, but you come to a street light and there's three beggars and they're all wanting money and you've got a $5 bill. Now in America, you feel pressure at that moment because you want to give to three people and you've only got a $5 bill in your pocket. So one of two things, either you just got to drive on and forget about it, or you got to go somewhere and get change. So you can give to each of the three people equally. This equality thing is an American Western mentality. It's not found in the Bible. Because if you gave the $5 bill to one of the poor people, what would you be classified as? Well, you wouldn't be fair, but you'd be merciful. Right? Is that not, did you have to give anyone anything? No. So if you gave one of them five bucks, you'd be merciful. Now, we wouldn't feel good about that because we weren't fair. And so we got to try to get that out of our head. God didn't have to save anybody. And he saved some, and I hope the sum is 99.9% of everybody. I'm not, I don't personally believe it's the few that, that we all tend to think. I think that God's going to save the majority of people. I think that glorifies him more. But that remains to be seen, doesn't it? The point I'm trying to make is God saving some and not all makes God merciful. And therefore, mercy, the mercy of God, is attached to another word that we don't like, unfairness. Grace is attached to unfairness. Grace is not fair. Grace is not distributed equally among all people. Some people have greater gifts than others. I will never be an opera singer. I will never be the pilot of an airliner. I will never be the captain of a, of a cruise ship. I will never uh, be a marathon. Uh, oh, I was a marathon runner. I'll, I'll never be a sprinter. Am I fast enough? And I can I practice and practice and practice and practice and practice, which I did. I can do everything that the fast guy does. I can work out with weights as much as he does, and I'll never be as fast as he is. He's got certain abilities that I just don't have. Why? That's not fair. Women get to birth children. That's not fair. I bring that up, everybody says, you know, says you, brother. But why shouldn't men enjoy that? Why, I mean, we, we don't write many songs about fathers. We write a bunch of songs about mamas. And, and mamas are sweet and nice, and we remember them. Fathers, they're kind of like law, and mamas are like grace. But, but, but it, there's a difference, isn't there? Okay? The differences are not fair. God's got no intention of being fair in a human sense. 
Why would God stoop down to meet some arbitrary standard that we've set? God is interested in being God. And it's our job to, to, to adjust to work in that. It's like you're going to go to work for a company that already has systems in place. Your job is not to change the systems. Your job is to find out how they work and work in that. Okay, God's got a universe that he created all by himself. It belongs to him. He owns it. He can create life and destroy it anytime he wants to. He has total control over everything, and he decided to do what he did. And we can sit there and say, well, why did you do it this way? Why didn't you do it that way? Well, I don't understand who you do. Why don't you? I don't, I don't get it. What's wrong with you? Or we can worship him. And all that other stuff is called grumbling and murmuring and complaining, which God is, doesn't take too kindly to. He killed people in the Bible because they grumbled and complained. So all I'm saying is worship is salvation. The goal of salvation is worship. The goal of salvation is for us to be so radically transformed by what God does for us that we enjoy who God is and what God does, that we genuinely enjoy that. We enjoy God alone being glorified, not us. We enjoy God being exalted, not us. The world doesn't enjoy that. We enjoy keeping God's commandments because we know that glorifies God. And it doesn't mean that we have to obey them perfectly. It means that by the struggle that we put forth to obey, we are testifying that Jesus is worth the effort. Somebody told me recently, I'm struggling to believe. Okay, great. Your struggle testifies that it's worth struggling over. Right? These, and so you can slice this and dice this any way you want to. I know that some people say, well, God didn't really harden Pharaoh's heart. It's that he just loved him less. Well, you know what? You didn't fix anything. He's going to love you less in the sense he's not going to save you. There's no difference in the, in the end result. It, it, that's to make us feel better about it. He loves everybody, but he loves some people more. So, so um, somebody was making a joke about it and said, well, God loves everybody the same, but he loves more, he loves other, some people more, more the same than he does others. So, any, you, you, can, you can twist this and try to get a clever phrase any way you want to. God has chosen some for salvation and the rest he leaves to, him, to themselves. Well, that's what he's proving. And so, and, and, and so he does this for his own glory. He doesn't do it because he's mean and pushes his weight around. He's not capricious. And, and, and he doesn't have to have a reason why he chose us. I promise you that, and again, this is an American thing. You, you, you build a house for your wife. You're a man. You're a husband. You build a house for your wife. You better leave her alone. Let her decorate it. Let her put the chair over here and the dresser over there. Because, number one, it, it, it's going to work out fine for you if you leave her alone. But if you try to monkey around with that, she, it's, it's like you might as well live on the roof. Because why? That's her nest. She's feathering her nest. That's her sphere of influence. And she wants the 
this drawer to have the knives in it and she wants over here to have the forks and she wants the plates over there. We don't care. Just eat. I couldn't tell you right. I've lived in the house I'm in now for a while. I can't tell you where the plates are. I think I know. I don't care. You go to a wedding and the guy's looking at the the, the scared young man that's getting married as these vows are being presented to him and he's counting the cost in his mind. And you go out and the wife says, did you see how lovely her shoes were? Women make the world beautiful. They make things sweet. They make things nice. They make things beautiful. They, 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 they flower things. They're, that's their nature. Um, we've got, we're raising our two grandchildren. Periodically, we wake up and there's grandchildren in our bed. Okay, they're not snuggled up to me. They're snuggled up to Rhonda. And I mean, I don't know how Rhonda sleeps. They've got one on this side and the other one's on top of her. And she's fine. She's sleeping right or wrong. I go, good night. I couldn't sleep for a second in that. And what they love her. They, it's, it's, they adore her. And, and so they fear me. They respect me. They honor me. And they love me. I'm not saying they don't love me, but it's a different kind of love, isn't it? All right. We have a different kind of love for God than we do for our families, for our wife, for our husband, for our children. It's not the same. Because God's not the same. So there is a reverential respect that we have for God. And one of the best ways I understand how that's manifested is in the prayer of Abraham when he is begging God not to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And in the prayer, he says, Lord, if you will not be angry, I will pray this one more thing. And he's very gingerly and very timidly approaching God with request. And then God keeps saying, yeah, well, for 50 people, I won't destroy. For 45, I won't. For 40, I won't. 30. It keeps going down. keeps lowering the bar. And he couldn't find 10 righteous souls in the city. Of which, according to the Bible, and I really don't understand this, but according to the Bible, Lot, his wife, and what, two daughters or three daughters? One, two, three, four, five. Four or five people were already had, you already had jump on four people. So you need six more in the whole city. And there wasn't six more in the whole city. So God rained down fire and brimstone. You believe that, Brother Blair? Absolutely, I believe that. Absolutely. And that's before nuclear weapons. It wasn't a meteorite. It was fire and brimstone. So, so uh, we love God in this reverential respect, in this fear, in this trepidation, in this, in this timidity, and we gingerly approach him. Now, the Bible says in the New Testament we can have boldness to enter into the throne room of grace. Okay, yeah. We got bo- why? Why are we bold? It's not because we're smart Alex. It's not because we're better than anybody else. It's because of what Jesus did and who Jesus is. So we have that confidence. But then when we get in the throne room, boldly, what are we asking for? Grace and mercy in time of need. Right. So, so yeah, we're going to be bold by getting there. We know we can get in God's presence, but... We need mercy and grace. Okay, so there you go. So understand this. God has determined that grace and mercy are not equally distributed among all people. And even among the people to whom God gives grace and mercy, even among them, it is not distributed equally. 
If you try to figure out what sin you can commit where God's just said, I'm done with you. Look at Moses and then look at, at Jonah. Moses said, struck the rock. Three million belly acres. Three million complainers. Three million people whining and griping and complaining about what God had done. Would to God we were back in Egypt. Would to God we were back getting beat all the time. Are you idiots? And he was so exasperated, he struck the rock. And God said, you're done. And God killed him, and we don't even know where he was buried. And yet Jonah's sitting on this mountain overlooking a city where 500,000 people just got saved, and he's mad at God, and he's griping and complaining. So God grows a gourd over his head to give him shade while he's griping and complaining. Why didn't God treat Jonah the way he treated Moses? He doesn't do that. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and whom I will, I will harden. And so you and I need to be crawling on our hands and knees just about every day, thanking God that he didn't harden our hearts when he very well could have. And I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. I just said it Thursday night over in Mandeville that there are people in hell right now who are screaming in agony right now who have been in hell screaming in agony for thousands of years, and humanly speaking, they have not done as much bad as I've already done, and I get to go to heaven. That does not make me proud, and that doesn't even make me happy. It makes me happy I'm going to heaven, yes, but, but that's not fair. So if you're trying to make God look fair, you're wasting your time. God wants to be God. He wants to be glorified and honored and feared and obeyed and adored and treasured. And so it's behooving upon us to, to, to submit ourselves to that rather than try to change God and make God to be more like man. My wife, my children, my grandchildren, thank God every day that God is not like me. They would be in un, untold misery if, if God was like me because I'm not like God. And I want to be, but I'm not. So I'm trying, so pray for your pastor. So why did they reject the truth and suppress the truth and not love the truth? Well, the Bible says because they took pleasure in wickedness. Now, you didn't end the, I'm at the bottom of page 26. Now, you didn't, you, didn't, you didn't give the final answer. Well, why did they love wickedness? Why did they take pleasure in wickedness? Ultimately, you get down to, to four words. Because they wanted to. Why did they want to? That's right. That's the difference. Right. 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 I'll, I'll tell you how this works. You do something wrong and God the Father is ready to destroy you. And Jesus stands in the way and says, if you destroy them... You're saying that my death and resurrection wasn't good enough. You told me to die for them, and I did. You told me to rise from the dead, I did. I did everything you told me to do, and you're, you're going to kill them who, who are saved so, and destroy them because they sin. You're telling, them, telling the world that, that they're not safe even in me. 
That's why you get convicted. That's why the Holy Spirit comes to convict you. That's why you repent. That's why you change. Other than that, you wouldn't. But for the grace of God, there go I. Usually it's talked about with poor people in the ditch or or drug addicts or things like that. Let's talk about the nice people, the rich people, the people that's got nice homes and and are pleasant. They got pleasant uh, attitudes. They are, are generous. They keep their yards mowed. They have good jobs. They vote correctly. They don't like homosexuals. They watch Fox News. They love the military. They salute the flag. They raise their children. Their children are all doctors and lawyers, and they're lost. They hate God, too. And but for the grace of God, there go I. It's not just the dirty people. They think they don't need God. Exactly. Exactly. But but it's both. It's not just the guy in the ditch. It's the guy that's got it all together, supposedly. Lost people. There, but for the grace of God, there go I. When you love sin, you simply cannot love the truth. The truth is too threatening. It threatens to take away your illicit pleasures. I would venture to say that virtually all falsehood comes from this, a stronger affection for the pleasures of sin. That is what unrighteousness is all about, loving sin more than loving God and his truth. So again, the the issue is not that they did something wrong. The issue is they love darkness rather than light. So the issue of truth is also an issue of the heart, way before it is an issue of the head. When the heart is in love with self-exaltation and independence and the pleasures of sin, the mind will inevitably distort the truth or suppress it in order to protect the idols that the heart has manufactured. Because left to itself, an unconverted heart manufactures idols every day. And that is why we need not to merely, not merely new ideas or more information, but we need a new heart. And we do not need to simply get rid of our passions, desires, and pleasures. Those are the things that distinguish us from other created animals. It is what makes us to be human. Now, I know, and I'm going to, I'm going to offend all the animal lovers by saying this. The reason your dog has a conniption fit when you walk in the door and just thinks you're God and just jumps up in your lap and licks you all over, that he's hardwired to do that. He's hardwired to do that. An animal does that by, by nature, by instinct. And you could beat that dog and then turn around and he'd love you. And, and so, but people loving God is not instinct. It's not wired into our brain. So we need a new heart, don't we? Now, the mistake that people have made throughout history is they say, well, we need to control our passions. It's like the the, the people trying to raise children. One of the first things I was taught when I was trying to raise my children, you have to break their will. Well, once you break their will, they're broken. It's, it's, It's not that you want to break their will. You want to fashion and shape and mold their will. But if you break it, they're broken. Somebody was interviewing Charles Manson, and they were trying to figure out, because this is what sociologists and psychiatrists and psychologists do. They can't figure out why people do what they do. Why did you want to live like you live? Why did you want to do what you do? You're smart. You're intelligent. Why did you want to get a job and make a million dollars and have a wife and child and raise them do good? 
He said, every day when I was growing up, my father told me I'd never amount to anything. He beat me and beat me and beat me and beat me all the time, especially when he was drunk. And he said, you're no good, you're no good, you're no good, you're no good, you're no good. So I decided to fulfill his prophecy. And I made my mind up to be no good. So now it's his fault that he did what he did. Ultimately, we're responsible for our own actions. But things contribute to why we do what we do. There's no doubt about that. And so we need to understand that the way we raise our children and what we say to them it's more than just beating them up and telling them they're stupid and, and, and that they're wrong all the time. I believe in spanking. I believe in spanking people, children very severely. But if you do it right, you don't have to do that very often. The most of the time, we communicate with each other. I was watching Rhonda spank one of my grandchildren recently, and I'm sitting over there saying, They, they don't even, I mean, it's nothing. It's like nothing. And she was really upset with them, too. And, it, and I said, I, I didn't say in front of them, but I took her off to the side. I said, did you know what that accomplished? Nothing. Then let me have them. And they'll pray to live. And then, and then they'll fear, because until a child is old enough to understand responsibility, the only thing they can understand is pain. So you have to make it not worth their while that they hesitate. Now, they might still do it anyway, but, but they, they will do it. That's why people hide. They know they're wrong when they hide. They, you're proving that you think it's wrong. When you lie about it, when you hide it, when you do it in the dark and under the table and behind the tree, you're proving that you already know it's wrong, right? But our but so you don't want to become passionless. Is that the right word? You don't want to have no passions. You want no, it's not that you, you've got such a control over your emotions that you become emotionless. That's not godly. God gave us our passions and desires and pleasures. Those are the things that distinguish us from other created animals. It's what makes us to be human. So what we need are a brand new set of passions, desires, and pleasures. And that is what happens in the miracle of the new birth. Look again at what Jesus said in John 3, 19 through 21. I don't, did you feel like reading, sister? Okay, Brother Don, John 3, 19 through 21. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Now, what do you see in that passage? You see passions. You see loves. He loves, love, the men love darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Now, everyone who does evil, what, does, what is his disposition toward the light? Hate he the hates light. it. That's not... That's not simply a, an issue of distance. He's not just separated from the light. He doesn't love the light. He hates the light. We're not neutral. Lost people are not neutral about God. It's not that they can take him or leave him. That's not true. We automatically, by nature, hate God. Children, little babies, hate God. 
I know that's offensive, but that's the truth. That's the... Yeah, cockroaches hate me. That's got to be part of the curse. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I was talking to a pest control guy. He said, when you see cockroaches running around, that's because your walls are so filled, there's no room for them. Isn't that insulting? And he said, I don't care how clean you keep your house. So I saw something the other day that I wish I'd have known about. They're running, they're running tubes at the bottom of walls and at the top of walls. And it's got little spray nozzles on them. And then you hook up this thing on the outside of the house and you put this spray in there and it sprays the walls. That's where you need to spray, not when you see someone rocking around out there. So, you know, just, you know, after I build my house, they come up with that, right? So, but look at the passions here. Love, hate. You see all this? And so he who practices the truth, that's the key, practices the truth. We don't always succeed, do we? We're practicing the truth. We come to the light. Why do we come to the light? So that his deeds may be manifest as having and wrought in God. We want God to know what we're doing because we want to please him. Here Jesus gives the very same analysis of our sinful heart and why they suppress the truth of God. Jesus said, this is the judgment that light has come into the world, truth, and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. So this is a love and hate issue, isn't it? Lost people don't simply do darkness, they love the darkness. Why? Jesus said it's because their deeds are evil. And that is simply another way of saying these people are unrighteous. And divine light and truth would expose that unrighteousness while earthly darkness conceals it. Therefore, we suppress the truth in order to protect the ugliness of our sinful desires. So we hide in the darkness. This is why when you, there's a group of people over there talking together and you walk up to join in their conversation and all of a sudden the group disbands and you're left standing over there by yourself. Why? Because they don't want to hear what you have to say. Why? They know what you're going to say. They already know what you're going to say. When I used to work at Ingalls, they, they were giving this lady a, a wedding shower. And, and so I bought a gift, and were, everybody in the, in, the, in the group was going to give Ruth a, a wedding uh, present. And then I found out they weren't getting married. She was just going to shack up with him. And I went over to her, and I said, is that true? And she said, yes. And I said, well, I'm not going to celebrate your sin, and so they all had a great time together, and I'm over there by myself. And they said, why don't you come? Because they're, they're not getting married. I'm not going to give her a wedding gift because they're not getting married. I'm not going to participate in what God says was wrong. And, of course, nobody agreed with me, and everybody thought I was a nut, and they didn't respect me, and they didn't think I was a great person. They thought I was an idiot. And, and, but I wasn't an idiot. I was being faithful to God. I can't celebrate what God has called sin. Then I'm going along with it. There it is. Why won't we come to the light and embrace the love of the truth? Because of unrighteousness. And in our lost condition, we hate the light. Everybody hates the light in their lost condition, not just a few people. So in our fallen and unsaved condition, people do not merely seek to avoid the light. We aren't neutral about the light. Jesus said we hate the light. And because we hate this divine light, all lost people seek to evade the truth if they can. But if they can't evade it, then they will twist the truth, they will distort the truth, and give it a self-justifying spin. And that's, this is what it means to suppress the truth. So here's the great lesson to be learned. 
The reason the mind of the lost evades, twists, distorts, manipulates, and suppresses the truth of God is not because they are somehow mentally deficient, but because they are morally deficient. All lost people suppress the light of God's glory and power because they genuinely love the darkness of an independence that they think they have. Lost people love their sins and the seeming invincibility of their own self-determination, then why do people in jail cry? If that's true, if people love their sins, why do people in jail, or people in the back of the squad car with handcuffs on them, why do they cry? Why are they weeping? Because they, they got caught. That's primarily the reason. Because they got caught. Meaning, if they had not got caught, they'd be laughing and, and, and enjoying their sin. So it's not the sin that they're upset about. It's the fact that they got punished. It's the, it's the results of their sin. It's the, it's the conclusion of their sins. It's the punishment of their sins. The jail time, the sickness, the, the exposure, the humiliation, the divorce when your wife finds out about it. All of this stuff is the results of sin, but it's not the sin itself. In order for lost people to be convicted about sin, that is a work of the Holy Spirit. People have to be sorrowful that they have sinned against God because they think God is holy. Now, how in the world are lost people ever going to think God's holy? Because they don't think he's holy by nature. So how are they going to do that? How are they ever going to come to the conclusion that God is holy? God has to give them that. God has to reveal that to them. Now, there's a couple of ways. God can do it sovereignly or constant, 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 ongoing teaching and preaching of the word of God, God uses to bring conviction into their heart and open their eyes, unveil their faith, and they see the glory of God. And then when they see that, they act like Isaiah, and they despise themselves because they know they're sinful. That dynamic has to occur for anybody to be born again. So, the most important thing that people can know who are lost is that they're damned by God, that God is angry with them. The, the most important thing they need to know is that their sin is going to bring damnation against them. Now, we don't believe that anymore. The church believed that for about 1,850 years, but in the last 150 years or so, especially here in America, we have substituted that pattern, that dynamic, with we need to let them know that God loves them. I've been told over and over in, in, in formal settings, Brother Blair, you're wrong about this. People already know they're in trouble with God. They need to know they can be forgiven. Well, some people might need to know that. But they don't really believe their, their, their sins are wrong or they'd stop it. Now, they, well, they can't stop it because they're addicted. Okay, then we get into all that. No, they can stop it. I know lots of lost people that quit taking drugs. I know lots of lost people that got off alcohol. It didn't save them. There's an entire industry, I've been very familiar with it recently, that has a plan, that has education, and it has tests, and it has uh, classes, and they have awards, and they have accountability, and it's got nothing to do with God, nothing to do with the Bible, nothing to do with salvation. And they have about a 30%, 25, 30% success rate. The overwhelming majority do not get better with these programs, but some do. 
at least for a while. So people, it's it, it what people, according to the Bible, according to Jesus, according to the apostles, and fairly spiritual people, you should talk about damnation and hell five times more than you talk about the love of God. That's the way Jesus taught. That's the way the apostles taught. That's what the Bible says. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just me. Now, I, people say, well, you enjoy that. No, I really would side on the favor of telling people about the love of God. You, you, you don't realize how much I would. And I used to do that all the time, too. But people don't hear the love of God when, they, when you talk about the love of God when they're lost and they're not convicted yet. You talk about the love of God after they're convicted. But in order for them to be convicted, they have to know the wrath of God. Because when you talk about the love of God before the Holy Spirit has brought them under conviction, all they hear is leniency. God's a sap. He loves you so much he won't even correct you. He'll love you anyway. And that's just not true. Go ahead and do it anyway. God will forgive you. God has to forgive you. I've heard that taught in church. God has to forgive you. Right, right. And how is God sovereign? Right. Anything that coerces God is stronger than God. Whether it's Satan, me, my decisions, anything that causes God to be painted in a corner where he has to do certain things, is stronger than God. And that means God's not sovereign. That thing is, whatever it is. And, and really and truly, this is the issue. It's not drugs, it's not alcohol, it's not wife beating, it's not voting liberal. That's not the issue. The issue is man's constant proclamation that I am the captain of my ship, I am the master of my fate, and God who says I alone am God and I am sovereign. That's the issue. And so people that, that do not believe the Bible have manufactured in church a false teaching that says that we initiate our own salvation by the power of our free will and our decisions and our choices. And that God can only offer salvation to us. He can't make it happen because that would be unfair. And, and it's, it, yeah, it is stupid, but it's, it's, it's evil because it puts man at the center of all that God does. And in my arrogance and in my self-righteousness and in my omnipotence, God loves me so much that he would never expect too much out of me. So you talk about stuff like, for example... Everybody that does not, is not a member of a local body is in rebellion to the Word of God. I couldn't care less how many bad experiences you've had in church. You're going to, get, you're going to have to get in line with me because I've had some of the worst experiences you could ever have with people in church, and here I am in church. So that's not because I'm better than you. It's because I believe the Bible and I fear God. And God Almighty said, do not forsake the assembling of yourself together. That's what he said. So when you, uh, when you forsake the assembling of yourself together, you're a rebel. 
because you don't even have any idea how to pray for me, how to pray for Brother Vern, how to pray for Brother Don, how to pray for, for anybody because you don't know them enough to know what they need. So you cannot consider how to stimulate them to love and good works. You don't even know anything about them. You can't confess your sins one to another because you're not one to another. You're off by yourself like a spiritual mercenary. And you'll go to this church one day, you'll go to that church one day, you go to that church one day, like you're a renegade. Now, you say, golly, Brother Blair, okay. Is, 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 does the Bible say that? Yeah, it does. I didn't write that. You say, well, my church isn't that good. Then help make it good. Then get roll up your sleeves and help the pastor be a man of God. Are you, or start another church yourself. And you do it right, since you know everything. And we'll all follow you. I've had people come here and tell me how I was doing everything sideways, upside down, and backwards. I said, I'll tell you what. I believe you. I'm easy. Start a church down the street. Do it right, because you know, right? I don't know. You do know. So now you start that church, you operate it, and we'll all follow you. How about that? So that's, that's what's called calling their bluff. Yeah, it is. So they're not mentally deficient. They're morally deficient. All lost people suppress the light of God's glory and power because they genuinely love the darkness of an independence that they think they have. Lost people love their sins and the seeming invincibility of their own self-determination. But in order to love that fabrication, they have to suppress the truth that God is God and that they are totally dependent on him for everything. I was in a Bible study recently at night. And after we got through with an hour and a half of Bible study, this man turned to me and said, but you know, Brother Blair, God loves everybody. I said, okay. He, yeah, yeah, that's very clear in the Bible. He loves everybody. Now, I never said a word. I said, really? Yeah. Now, I realize that the Bible says he doesn't love Esau. Okay. Yeah, and I realize that the Bible says that, that and it goes on, it's close verse after verse after verse after verse, confirming everything I just taught. I never said a word. And he's, he's sitting there talking himself out of what he just said. And I, I, looked at, I looked at the guy across the table from me, and I went, I, say that again? Well, I realize that it's not really that God loves everybody, but it's like, um, but, but God loves everybody. He wants everybody to be saved, Second Peter 3, 9. I said, well, that's not what Second Peter 3, 9 means. It's not why it's in the Bible. It's got nothing to do with salvation got to do with why Jesus tarries and why he doesn't come back. And, and he just looks at me and, and you know, and, but here's the deal. He's never had anybody challenge the statement that came out of his mouth. That's part of what we are designed to do as Christians. People already believe certain things and they say things and then everybody in the room just nods their head and agrees with them. And we say, well, wait a minute, that's not right. Wait a minute, wait, 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 that's not what the Bible says. Ho, 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 ho. No, 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 you're off base there. And, and it isn't that everybody immediately agrees with us. They begin to ponder if they love the Lord, if they, they begin to ponder and they begin to think. And they go home and they study the Bible. And, and if they're honest, if they're honest, they'll come back and say, that is what the Bible says. The Bible does not say that God loves everybody the same. He, God loves everybody in the sense that almost everybody on earth laughs sometimes. He gives them good days and barbecue and green grass and antibiotics and bifocals and children and baseball and, and clean air and, 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 and food and 
all kind of stuff. That's the love of God to us. And it's, and it's distributed almost universally. Even people who are being persecuted, you're not persecuted 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year for your entire life. Even those people laugh and have fun. So laughter is a gift from God. Music is a gift from God. Okay, all I'm saying, that's, that's the love of God. That's how God loves everybody. Well, you know, the Bible says that all men were created equal. No, the, constant, the Declaration of Independence says that, not the Bible. Golly, man. So, you know, here we are, and, 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 and again, we're on a journey. We're on a search. We're on an effort. Our effort may be weak. Our effort may not be as good as it should be. My effort to do this may not be as, as, as effective as it needs to be, but my effort is to rediscover biblical Christianity and be part of the church that Jesus established through the apostles and prophets and that he's building that church. I'm going to be part of that church. And the only way I know to do that is to understand the Bible better. Right? Okay. Now, the first time I taught Romans, I've had to almost totally rewrite the entire study because I've learned and grown so much since 2001, 2002, 2003 when I first started teaching this. Lost people love their sins and the seeming invincibility of their own self-determination, but in order to love that fabrication, they have to suppress the truth that God is God and that they are totally dependent on God for everything. And in Rome, six inches, too much rain, the wheat crop fails in the United States. Six inches, too less rain, the wheat crop fails in the United States. We are so fragile we're an accident waiting to happen while we ride around thinking that the way we're enjoying life now it will always be this way without any effort on our part to defend it or reclaim it or preserve it. And in Romans 1 and 18, the apostle said, this is why the wrath of God is being poured out. The suppression of the truth of God's glory and power and deity and goodness because of their love affair with unrighteousness, makes God furious. And that should cause every thinking human on earth to tremble with fear. So if the condition of the lost is this bad, is there any hope for mankind? Yes. And it lies in verses 16 and 17. Uh, I guess Sister Charlotte. Was it you? Charlotte. It's... They want you to read it, Vern. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. In other words, because we are unrighteous and in our unrighteousness we suppress the truth, our only hope, is that the righteousness that God expects and demands from us would be freely given to us. How? The spotless righteousness of Jesus Christ must be imputed or credited to us by faith alone and not by our own religious works. Other than that, we are doomed and we have no hope. Now, I've, I've covered 18 and 19 in 
28 pages. Now, let's look at page 29 in your handout. We're going to look at verses 20 through 24, the first exchange. So, Brother Don, if you'd read Romans 1, 20 through 24, my brother. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been made, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image, in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Okay, so here's the first exchange. It's found in verse 23. When, when, you, don't, when, you, when you know God but don't honor him as God, you become futile in your speculations and your foolish heart is darkened. What happens when that happens? You exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. So the first exchange that sinful people engage in is the exchanging of the glory of God for an image. And the apostle says here that the image that the glory of God is exchanged for can be anything such as man, birds, animals, crawling creatures. So what is an image? The dictionary defines an image as, number one, a physical likeness or representation of a person, animal, or thing, photographed, painted, sculptured, or otherwise made visible. Number two, it's an optical counterpart or appearance of an object as it's produced by reflection from a mirror, refraction by a lens, or the passage of luminous rays through a small aperture and their reception on a surface. That's what's called an image. So from that definition, we can extrapolate and expand the definition to include anything that detracts from or that minimizes or that replaces or that substitutes for God. So an image could also be money, possessions, earthly power or authority or people that we love and admire. So we, we say this, you know, that uh, Johnny Unitas is my idol. You don't know who Johnny Unitas is. Um, Dak Prescott is my idol. Or you could say, uh, I don't know singers anymore. I was going to say Elvis Presley, uh, Michael Jai, he's dead too. Um, Britney Spears is my idol. Is that Britney, is she one? Taylor Swift is my idol. Is that a new one? Okay. I don't keep up with secular music. I don't listen to it. I, I just think it's a waste of my time. I don't think it's funny. I don't think it's cute when they when they talk about running around on each other or killing each other or divorcing each other or enacting vengeance on something that was perpetrated on them. I don't see any sense in listening to that. That's going to feed my flesh and make me want to have retribution against people that hurt me. So I don't listen to that. I don't listen to a lot of gospel music either because it makes me mad because they denigrate God and you're in a song about God's glory and the song is filled with uh-huh, yeah, 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 mm-mm-mm-mm, yeah, yeah, mm-mm, yeah, yeah. And, you know, either you're too stupid to write lyrics or you're just trying to fill gaps in your song because you're under contract to have three 
CDs in two years, plus the obligatory Christmas album. And so you have to do three albums in two years. And so you have to write, what, 12, 15 songs per album. So you have to come up with, what, 45, four, uh, 36 to 45 new songs in two years. I'm talking about Christian artists. And so there's a lot of filling in the gaps with meaningless repetition that Jesus told us not to do. So there was a song talking about we don't use meaningless repetition. And here so in the in the in the in the chorus it says we don't use meaningless repetition. We don't use meaningless repetition. We don't use meaningless repetition. I said, golly, golly, man. Oh, help us, Jesus. Because, you know, it's not a lot to write about Jesus. He's, you know, finite being, and there's not a lot to talk about. So the Bible says that God created man in his image and in his likeness. So now we've already got a problem because Romans tells us that bad people, lost people, exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. But then God made an image. So is God sinning? Well, you've got to explain that, though. If God made an image, why is it wrong for me to make an image? So Genesis 1, 26 through 31, uh, Brother Vern, is, I'm just we're going to wear you out, brother. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the, all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Okay, now we have a problem, Houston. Now, uh, just from this verses that Brother Vern read, uh, they're gonna, we're gonna, we, we, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, are gonna make man according to our likeness and in our image, our plural. So we are made not only in the image of God, but we are made in the image of God in all three persons. And then let these people that we make rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Man was created to rule over nature. 
That means that we are that God created the, the world in such a way that it cannot and will not be productive unless man rules over it. So this, this goal that environmentalists seem to have of this pristine world where man is the problem is ungodly, unbiblical. And so we don't need less interference with nature. We need more interference with nature. And examples are given all the time of this beautiful mountain, Mount Everest or the K2 or whatever you want to look at. Well, the reality is nothing lives on the top of that. Nothing lives. A whole bunch of stuff dies on the top of that. There, I think I read yesterday at least 150 bodies cover Mount Everest right now. They can't even get to them. Um, bacteria doesn't grow up there. It's so violent. So people climb it because it's there, they say. And so there it's in them to explore and to press. And that's why they go to space. And that's why they crossed an ocean in a, in a sailboat. And that's why they did what they did. It's in us to expand and to rule over the earth. God put it in us. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God purposefully created man, man and woman separately. And he made them, he could have made them in the same way. And he could have made them at the same time. But he did not. He made man out of the dust of the earth. And he made woman from what? From the man, woman came out of man, and then God brought the woman to the man in the first marriage. And that shows us that if a woman wants to experience the zenith of her femininity, she has to do it connected to a godly, loving, and strong man. That it is men who help pervert women, and it is men that help women fulfill their femininity. Either way, men are in charge of pornography for the most part. Men are in charge of getting women, somebody's daughter, on drugs or whatever so that they will take their clothes off for the entertainment of other men. Men pervert women. Man, men, bad, evil, wicked, sinful, violent men created feminism. They sustain it. They finance it. Bad, wicked, evil, violent men created lesbianism. They, they created it. They sustain it. They finance it. If men would repent, if men would become godly and loving and strong in the Lord and the power of his might, we could fix lesbianism and we could fix feminism in two weeks. It would not be, and we do it without any government money. But the reason that women are violent against men, the reason that women hate men is because this has been put upon them by bad men. And so men are the key. They're the blame, they're the key. And you can like this or not like this. You can blame, you point your finger at women, that's what Adam did. It didn't work then, it's not going to work now. 
God called a man to lead. God called us to, to explore and to push and to conquer and to fight and to, and to, to uh, create. And God called women to encourage and support and bless and, and strengthen those men. A woman wants to be protected because a woman knows. I, I watch, I'm watching movies and the thing that I notice more than anything else about these women in these movies, they're supposedly so self-assured and supposedly so feminist is a man could, could make a comment to them in a hallway and they fall apart and they go tell somebody. Well, if you're so strong, why, why didn't you solve the conflict? You're going to want to die in a foxhole next to a man in combat and you can't handle a bad comment in a hallway? Are you serious? You're weak. Guess what? No joke. You've always been the weaker vessel. You always will be the weaker vessel. I didn't say that. God did. It's, it's ungodly for women to be in combat in foxholes, fighting and dying next to men. It's not, it doesn't work. Guess what? Guess what happens when you put men and women together in foxholes and in the same bed? Guess what happens? Guess what? Well, well, well what do you know? What do you think was going to happen? Men are not robots. I tell men all the time when they come to me and tell me they're struggling with lust or they're struggling with pornography, you're either a robot or you're a or homosexual or you like girls. That's your three choices. I don't know of a fourth choice. And I don't think you're a robot, and I don't think you're homosexual. So you like girls. Girls are pretty. God has given girls the gift of beauty. All women have beauty. All women have beauty. And it is good for a woman to accent that beauty so that when she goes into a restaurant, men are falling all over each other trying to hold the door open for her. It's in the, the, the nature of a man to want to do for a godly and virtuous woman. But there's a line. And when a woman dresses provocatively or a woman acts provocatively, she thinks she's going to get a kind, a gentle, loving, and godly husband. You're not. You're going to get a man that likes provocativeness. And, in, and when you stop being provocative, he's going to stop liking you. And so by the time a girl's 25 years old, she's already slept with 15 people. She's damaged goods. That's not the way to have life. That's not the way to live a good life. Now, I get criticized for this all the time. I've studied the issue. Most people that are against it have never studied it. They bring up one or two examples where it was abused or where it was not done right. I'm talking about arranged marriages. Now, See, wow, that won't work. That won't work, Brother Blair. That won't work. Well, what's going on now is not working. We've got more illegitimate births. Women are beat up more often now than they've ever been. Women are misused more now more than they've ever been. Because you get 18, 19, 17, 16, 19 year old, 20 year old girls out on their own in an apartment to do whatever they want to do without a man overseeing them, without a father or brothers overseeing them. Well, guess what happens? Men take advantage of her. Well, no joke, Sherlock. Men are bad. Good men are bad. 
It takes a good woman to keep a good man good. And so, so what's supposed to be is the girl is raised in church with the boy and their parents know each other and they know what this man is about. Now the only thing that anybody cares about anymore is how much money he makes. That's not enough. I don't really care if the man will never be wealthy. Is he godly? Because if he's godly, if he's saved, God Almighty tells him how to treat my daughter. So the whole thing's out of whack, and, and we need to recapture. I'm not talking about arranged marriages in the bad sense of the word, but, but godly, wise parents and godly and wise church leaders need to be involved in, in the dating process or the courting process, whatever you want to call it, I don't really care. We need to be involved in that. And we need to say that's not of God. I do too. I do too. But he, he proved himself. He proved himself. He jumped to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. He would be there if he was physically able. That's exactly right. So I, I have, I've not worried one night about my daughter with him. Not one night. So, but if your daughter's out in the world, you wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning and you weep. That's right. Okay. The Bible declares that man was made purposefully and determinedly made by God. And that means that man does not exist today due to accidental or random events that are completely unrelated to one another. That's Darwinian evolution. The scriptures clearly and repeatedly declare that man was created by God from the dust of the earth through the supernatural miracle in one single evening and morning division of time that God called a sixth day. And no other part of the universe was created like that. So in every way, man was different, distinct, and unique to everything else in the universe that God made. And this uniqueness of man is illustrated in five major ways. Number one, the uniqueness of of how man was created. Number two, the triune Godhead was present in creation, in man's creation. Number three, the uniqueness of man's being. Number four, God commanded man to subdue and dominate the earth. And number five, God holds man accountable. So let's look at each one of these. Number one, the uniqueness of how man was created. In the Bible, the day begins after sundown and ends at the beginning of the next sundown. So a day in the Bible is a 24-hour period of time that begins at evening and ends at morning. So, and I've said this before, if you really wanted to have an evening service in church, you should have it on Saturday evening to accompany a Sunday morning service because Sunday morning, Sunday, Sunday at sundown is Monday. Monday begins sundown Sunday and end sundown Monday. The evening and the morning came first. Now, when I was growing up, we got TV Guide. And TV Guide began on Saturday. I thought for years that the first day of the week was Saturday because TV Guide said it was. People, I can hear people now, bless his heart. Nobody ever taught me about anything like this. I went to... You know where I learned about the Beatles? In Sunday school at church. 
My father, my unsaved, lost father would not allow that in our home. When they sang and twisted on Ed Sullivan, I was not allowed to watch it. So I had to go to church to learn about sin like that. That's what Sunday school most often is. There's a bunch of kids get together to have fun and play while church is going on. It's not of God. Not of God. Now, if you don't have, if you're teaching children, then, that, then there's, there's, a, there's that. But, but most people are not. They're entertaining. Youth, youth groups is the same thing. Parents come and drop their kids off at church so that the youth leader can take care of them. It's the parent's responsibility to raise children, not the youth minister. So a day in the Bible is a 24-hour period of time that begins at evening and ends at morning. So on the first day, God created light. Uh, Sister Charlotte, look at Genesis 1-3. which he did with his spoken word. On the second day, Brother Don, God created heaven, Genesis 1, 6, and 8a. Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the water, waters, and let us separate the waters from the waters. God called the expanse heaven. Now, I, I should have put the other verse in there because it says there's waters above the expanse and there's waters below the expanse. So before the flood, there was water above heaven. Now, there, there's three heavens. There's the atmosphere around the earth, there's outer space, and then there's the dwelling of God, dwelling place of God. All three of those are called heaven. So around the atmosphere of the earth, there was water originally. And in the flood, the Bible says that water came down and then it was like volcanoes. There was water under the earth and they came up like volcanoes and shot water rather than magma. Now, I haven't watched the movie. I'm not going to watch the movie because I think it's blasphemy. But they, they made a movie about Noah and the ark. And I think it was uh, Russell Crowe was, was Noah. I think that's who was. I've never seen it. But I've seen the previews of it. And I saw where they did the special effects where they had the, the mounds of, of, of earth and then the water shot up in the air and came back down. That's probably pretty accurate of how it was. So water was coming down and water was shooting up at the same time. And so it flooded all the earth. That's how God destroyed all the living. So he did that by speaking. On the third day, God created dry land, the seas, and all vegetation. But the burn for uh, Genesis 1, 9, 10a, and 11. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. That's interesting. Adam named the animals. God named the earth and the seas. He didn't say the Atlantic Ocean. He said seas, and he called the dry land earth. Now, at that time, there was only one continent. There was only one continent in the earth. Dry land appeared out of the water, one continent. That's why you see animals that were raised in Africa, in, in Nebraska, their bones, because they were walking all over this one continent, and the continents divided over, over time. Um, and, and that's why the Himalayan mountains are there, because India was an was a island off to itself, and it crashed into the <laughs> continent pushing the mountains up 
That's why Mount Everest grows, I think it's two and a half millimeters every year. It gets taller every, every year by two and a half millimeters. Um, so the earth is still changing. It's still moving. The, pla- the tectonic plates are moving. Now, you say, golly, Brother Blair, that's, that's science. That's not the Bible. Well, time out. All truth is of God. All truth is of God. Now, I do not believe that all science tells the truth. There is political, there's science that's politically motivated. So I don't buy into that. But I believe that when when something is true, then it's true. And we ought to say that. Now, truth will never disagree with the Bible because God wrote the Bible. So I'm not fearing that. Well, what would you do if, if they discovered aliens from outer space? Then we would have to understand things a little differently, but the Bible would still be true. Now, I don't believe that there are aliens in outer space. I just don't believe that. That doesn't mean I'm right. Look, on the fourth day, God created the sun, moon, and the stars. Sister Charlotte, Genesis 1.14. So why are there stars in the heavens? For signs and seasons and days and years. That's it. That's it. That's why I don't believe in alien life. That's what they were made for. For signs, seasons, days, and years. That's why they exist. Now, now, um, people say, well, there you go, Brother Blair. That, That light from that star, it took 64 billion years for that light to get to you. So that's at least 64 billion years old. Well, they just make up a number. They can put 385 billion years. I mean, it's, it's irrelevant after you get past a certain point. But the point is, you, 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 when you make a statement like that, you're assuming something at the beginning of your calculation. You're assuming things like that light travels right now at 186,000 miles a second, and you're assuming that light has always traveled at 186,000 miles a second. If light has, has grossly slowed down, then that star could be no more than 10,000 years old. So you don't know that. You're assuming that light, that's what all teachings about evolution begin with assumptions. If the processes that are in place today have always been in place, how long would it take for God, for the earth to be and man to be? Okay. The, the, the fatal flaw in that is what makes you think that the processes that are going on today have always gone on. There is an event called creation, and creation has nothing in common with the processes that are in place now. The processes by which the earth and the universe operates have no connection with creation. That was a series of unrepeatable miracles that happened one time. And it got the ball rolling, so to speak. Now there's processes in place. Okay? The same thing, people say, well, I don't understand that. Okay, here we go. Lazarus was raised from the dead on September 24th, 2023. What would they do with Lazarus? Right, they'd study. What would they, so what, get detailed. What would they do? They'd take him to the hospital. Why? Why are they doing this? 
They'd get his blood pressure. They'd get his blood type. They'd look at his sleep habits. They'd look at his mom and daddy. They'd look at his, you know, his genealogy. Why are they trying to do all that? They're trying to figure out why a dead man came to life. But the resurrection of Lazarus has nothing to do with his blood type. It has nothing to do. He might have had high blood pressure because he died again later on. Okay. He might have had a worm in him that was eating his intestines. I don't know. He might have had he might have had a heart attack. I don't know. He might have been blind in one eye. Doesn't tell us. It's irrelevant. Resurrection has nothing to do with the function of the human body any more than creation has to do with the processes that are in place now that keep everything going along. They're completely separate events. And evolutionary teaching brings them together. So they exclude creation and say how long would it take for the dinosaurs to, to, to decay under the ground for us to produce, get oil out of it? 84 billion years. How long would it take a lump of coal to be under the earth and pressure to make a diamond? 84 billion years. Well, God just put all that in the earth to begin with. What came first, the chicken or the egg? The chicken came first. I could, the, chi the Bible says the chicken came first. A full, adult, mature chicken came first. And then he laid the egg. Laying the egg is the process that keeps everything going. The creation of the chicken has nothing to do with the laying of the egg. All right. So that's, that's why, it, the, to me, the dumbest thing, that it, the most lazy people on earth are evolutionary teachers. They're so lazy, they, want, they just assume all this. And it's a ton of stuff that they're assuming. It's why global climate change you don't know what zero is. You have no way of knowing what zero is. So is this climate do this? Well, we're right in the middle of a this, but it's going to do this later on. We don't know. We don't know. Right. Okay. Uh, amen to that. Comprehend nothing. That's correct. So, so don't make assumptions and then base everything else you got on those assumptions. When people are interpreting the Bible to me, especially about eschatology, they'll say, well, the Bible says this, and I'll say, I'm right with you. The Bible says that, I'm right with you. Therefore, this, the therefore this is where I disagree with them. Therefore, this is an opinion. That's an opinion. That's all it is. You will never get it any better than an opinion. Now, it may be an educated opinion. It may be true, but you don't know that. And so there has to be a humility in your, in your life where you're willing to say the therefore this might be wrong. You're drawing a conclusion with your finite mind based upon two things that are absolutely true. One plus one equals two. That's a fact. But because one plus one is two, therefore, this plus that equals that is not the same thing as saying one plus one is two. And so, because this is this and this is that, then therefore God's going to do this and the mark of the beast and the antichrist and the temple and all. Wait, slow down. Good night. How did you get that out of that? 
Now, now all I'm saying is, well, then you're saying we can't understand the book of the Revelation. I'm saying that no matter how you study it, you're going to have questions. And so after you get through studying it, you will not come to the conclusion of the matter. And if you think you do, then you're not, in, not very intelligent because it, it creates more questions than it answers. That's not me saying that. That is the smartest people on the planet saying that for the last 2,000 years. Don't let anybody deceive you. <laughs> right, right, right. But, but before he left, here's, here's my eschatology in a nutshell. I'm coming back, get ready. Because the one I find faithful is the one that's going to be blessed. That's it. Because I can't, I can't build the temple or stop it from being built. I can't create the Antichrist. Yeah. And look, look, here's, I've made this deal with everybody. I don't believe in a rapture. I don't believe that that's tr in the Bible. I believe that's a misinterpretation. I believe 2 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians talks about the second coming, not another event. Okay. But I might be wrong. And if I go up, because I'm in the church, I'm saved. If I'm, I'll, I'll repent on the way up if I'm wrong. That's the best I can give you. But why in the world do you think that it's another event? What made you think that? Usually because they go back to a Greek word that means the catching up is comes from a word that has to do with rapture. Okay. Well, we sing a song, rapture, we're going to come, we're, we're, we're going to be raptured with Jesus. We're, we're going to be enamored with Jesus. It's got nothing to do with a separate event. Let me just say this. For 1,854 years, the Christian church didn't believe that. They didn't teach that. There's no records anywhere of that. Now, so there aren't any more scriptures, right? So why are you believing it? Because you were taught that. And you read the Bible now through the filter that you were taught. And you, it's hard for you to get out of it. So you said, I studied the Bible. And really now, the only thing that people argue about now is when the rapture is going to be. I don't even think there is a rapture. I have no idea why anybody would want to be raptured. I have no idea what the purpose of a rapture would be. And usually in America, I listen to people all the time. Man, things are getting pretty bad. God's going to come get us any minute now. Go, go live in Indonesia. They got beat and put in prison for 150 years. And God didn't rapture them. Why, does, why do we think God loves the American church more than he loves anybody else? It's arrogance on our part. Now, I just don't buy into it. We'll have to stop now. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time in the Bible. Help us, God, to understand this better. And Lord Jesus, I pray, Father, that you will give us truth and let us believe the truth and love the truth. In Jesus' name, amen.